Hello and welcome to Cyberdelia. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm still Mo. <laughs> and we're still alive. Uh, <laughs> which, I mean, this year is saying something. Um, that's we, pretty we made cool. it. Yeah, we made it. Yeah. Oh, shoot, where to begin? Well, so I, I guess there's just a few quick notes. We actually do have another episode um, still sort of in the can. Um, I just haven't managed to uh, finish it. And then we had another one, which... Um, we were trying to record, but there's there's this whole uh, pandemic thing that was wrecking the network for everyone. And oh right, that thing. Yeah, I I think we made it like 20 minutes into that episode before we'd had like three or four dropouts and it just gave yeah, up. That was tough. Uh, yeah, it, it feels so good to have uh, networks working reliably again, and I mean video conferencing has gotten so much better in the past six months what do you know <laughs> there's a lot of competition and the and the players that were there before have definitely beefed up their their software to compete so uh mo what did you do on your uh summer covidcation oh my goodness uh right so covidcation with i guess we like do we start from march is that where we go back to or do uh, we yeah it was it was around march uh yeah. Something like that. And just all of a sudden, uh, you, you couldn't actually do a web conference for, for your life. It, it was just impossible. Yeah, it was tough for sure. Uh, I guess just continuing with school, still working away. Uh, I spent a couple of months actually going through the interview circuit, just doing interviews with different companies and uh, you know checking out what that's like. And uh, finished a course a couple of weeks ago. Oh, man. Uh, can't say that I really did anything, actually. <laughs> it's just executing on what I've already been doing. And missing David. Man, I did. That's you. <laughs> I've been missing you, Mo. Um, basically, I've been having the, the weirdest... Um, I, I mean, I wish I could say I was baking bread and making pie like everyone else, but um, I, I was just doing... Essentially, just kind of uh, trying to maintain my sanity and, and keeping keeping up uh, on, on some of my projects. So, I mean, one thing I started working on was I, I got this um, this LED USB board. And so um, in my first, because, uh, uh, you know, you end up having to take staycations um, mm -hmm. when, when you can't go anywhere. And so, you know, I, I made it my goal to learn Rust. I, I really like Rust. Yes. Uh, the problem is, I, you know, Rust, every time I... I feel like I've got it, then I just lose it. And I, I tried looking at some code the, again the other day, and it's just, it's hard. Like, you, you kind of oh. have to stay on the rest train. And so the funny part about that is, then when I finally reapproached Go, Go seems so darn easy after <laughs> rest. Um, so, yeah, I redid that project again, this time in Go, and um, that was much quicker. I can say I, I spent some time learning Go as well. I went through like a free code camp course, which was like seven hours, and I went through the curriculum and, and started writing uh, a few tiny little examples of things in Golang. And you know what? I'm actually kind of glad there's only one way to write a loop. Uh, <laughs> there's certain things I actually really like about it. It's like, uh, and we can get into that. I won't get into it now, but it's oh. uh, it's been fun. Well, and I mean, uh, the, the tooling around Go is just, I, I tried it before the the 1.0, and let me tell you, that was a really rough experience. And now it's just, ah, oh, I'm really enjoying Go. It, it might actually replace uh, Ruby as my, my go-to um, when I just want to hack something up. <laughs> go-to. Oh, yeah. On top of that, with learning Go, it's been, uh, I've been redoing some of my, uh, uh, my old, uh, rails projects and go um so like my little record collection program that's been redone nice. i've been making all sorts of uh, personal tooling for myself that had always just been on the uh someday list and then um i i've been theoretically starting school except i've i've been a very bad student so far and i still haven't <laughs> done my first homework assignment so and I'm you're, not sure you're, out you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing you wait till the night before Oh, man. In that case, the, they're giving me way too much rope I'm going to hang myself with. Um, <laughs> but 
I, I can't say I haven't been um, trying to learn new stuff because I, I feel like in some respects, this year has been a great one for kind of hitting some new conceptual milestones in my thinking. Um, uh, well, so I, I sort of see a conceptual milestone as when when suddenly something just clicks in your brain and a thing that had been very, very hard suddenly is nearly effortless. Um, so the clearest instance I've ever had of that was um, I'd been sent on a work training trip to learn how to use D-Trace. And I learned it from Max Brunning of Joyent, who uh, who wrote their KVM implementation. And he was assisted by uh, Brendan Gregg, who wrote the performance book. So, like, I mean, that was just a powerhouse of a week. Um, it's not often you actually see, like, your brain just magically work in a way that's it did not do before. Um, mm-hmm. So, Those are big names. I remember the first time I heard the name Brendan Gregg. Uh, probably around 2013, 2014, just from listening to you talk. Uh, and maybe it was some of the other operations people were talking oh. about some of the tools and like his influence in, in Linux, especially around performance. Um, I don't know what he's up to now. I think he's at Netflix. What else yeah. am I missing? I, well, I think he's still at Netflix. But what I do know, um, I bet based off the last time I checked uh, my my Twitter was um, he's actually working on a second edition of his performance book. And this one's more aimed at uh, cloud computing. So that's going to be interesting. I, if, if I get that in my Christmas stocking this year, I would be uh, a very happy uh, camper. So, wow. Well, you know, um, it's great to hear you've been hacking away. I know I recall you saying something about building a tiny little OS kernel in Rust. And you've been hacking on a lot of different projects this year. Yeah, um, the OS kernel, basically, I, the story of my life is like I, I end up doing a bunch of the interesting parts and then uh, just get bored. So uh, <laughs> that that code's just rotting away. But um, but I, you know, actually, it's been fun picking up a bunch of old projects that I'd done, you know, 80 percent of or whatever. And then, hey, I it wouldn't take too much to finish this. And now they're. Uh, they're done or online and yeah it's it's been it's been refreshing uh yeah so you've been rewriting a lot of things you said you were rewriting some things you had written in ruby around http and rewriting in go um mm-hmm. i don't know about you but one of the things i've enjoyed is like with ruby i can just pull up my editor i can write a, some ruby code and i can run it like instantaneously like right there and get some feedback and feel like i have some level of productivity mm-hmm. go I'm starting to feel a little bit of the same thing. I can just go write main.rb, start writing whatever I want, and go run. And all of a sudden, I've got that same level of of speed and productivity, but in Go. It's, yeah. uh, it's odd. It's a compiled language. It's not even a, a scripting language, but I've got that same level of, uh, oh, I don't know. It's starting to, it's starting to seep in slowly. I wouldn't say that I've converted, but I'm 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 starting to see. Let let me tell like. you what what will change your mind and suddenly go just works. I I finally now reliably have um, the Vim plugin you complete me uh, running and the language server integration for Go is so good um, that uh, there's so many times I I don't even look at the the documentation for the thing that I'm for the library I'm pulling in, it's just like, you know, Inline. da 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 dot, and then just flip through the functions that I have access to. And we used to call that IntelliSense back in the uh, yeah. Windows Microsoft.NET days. And it's back. It, oh, it, that is a magical feeling, let me tell you. Um, so, like for for doing the um, the Go implementation of this USB board versus the Rust one, just being able to pull in the go usb library and it was just like okay and and, i mean to be fair to rust when i was learning it uh, on that i had to learn both rust and how usb worked so with like this one once you kind of understand how to send like uh control sequences to usb like that that part's sort of out of the way Um, right now you can just focus on go code Mm -hmm. and so you're enjoying go yeah and then um, 
the, the one other thing that I've sort of been working on this uh, past month, well, I mean, I, I mean, this is sort of a larger meta thing, and I'm, I'm sorry to steal all the oxygen in the room here, but... Go nuts, David. I love uh, listening. So I, I'm about halfway through this book called Surfaces and Essences by um, Hostard, the same same writer who did Go to Lesher Bach. Um, and the, the crux of it is um, how analogy is how... Um, it's basically the engine for how humans learn. And somewhere along that, that ticked off a thing in, in my head of, you know, there's a whole bunch of things which I say I know. Um, I, I guess this isn't wholly related, but um, time-wise, it, it links up. Uh, so looking at uh, theory versus application, realizing that there was a lot of things where I knew how it worked, uh, like I knew how to get it going, but I didn't know the theory behind it. And then stuff that I knew the theory of, but didn't actually know the application of it. So um, I've been playing with the over the wire um, war games. And one thing I knew the theory of was shell code, um, you know, as a, as a means of getting a shell. Um, Sorry, you know, could you basically explain I, some of these to me? What is over the wire? Oh, and yeah. What is shell code? I, I'm throwing Sorry, out a whole Dave. lot of stuff. So yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> go easy so, on me. Uh, my apologies. Over the wire is a capture the flag of um, of sort of system exploitation. Um, there, there's uh, NADAs, so network katas. I'm I'm guessing that's short for where you learn basically how not to write PHP code, um, at, which it's very valuable. Um, w- one example. Uh, so you're trying to uh, essentially upload a file uh, in order to um, get the uh, the password that's on the system. And so initially it's just, well, it'll let you upload whatever, and you're trying to manipulate the path, so you, you change the file name. Uh, and then, oh, okay, well, PHP, we're going to use the image verification library. But the image verification uh, function, like, it's just, it's only using essentially the same magic strings to, to see sort of what file it is. So if you, for example, wanted to send a bitmap file, you would only have to put in a capital B and a capital M at the start of your file. Mm-hmm. And then PHP will say, yeah, this is a valid image. It's a bitmap. Oh <laughs> um, and then, you, you know, you just put in your PHP code from there. Like that's over the wire. Um, and another, one of the things that it has is binary exploitation. Um, and so, you, you're given a, a C program, and okay, so when you find out that you have this uh, ingress point through a uh, uh, environment variable, you say, oh, I, c- I can run in any instructions I want. Now, up to this point, you know, I'd seen it done, and you know, you do a copy paste, so it's like, oh yes, I understand shellcode, and you you know, at at one one conceptual level of like, okay, well. You can just send x86 instructions, and that's fine. But to actually write good shellcode, there's a lot of things that you have to sort of understand. So one is, okay, if you're doing um, string copying operations, well, you can't have a null byte in there. And so there's x86 instructions. Like if you um, if you use uh, obj-dump or um, some other way of uh, disassembling the, um, the executable code that you're creating... You see, oh, I, I can't use a, just a move instruction because that, like, you're going to end up with some null bytes in there. So you wouldn't use move EAX, which gives you the full, um, oh, man, sorry, I'm space. <laughs> so you're saying move EAX and I'm seeing MOV space EAX. You're moving whatever's at that uh, address to another location. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, and also, like, in my head, I, I, I've got the... Um, the Intel <laughs> assembly <laughs> syntax. So it's like, actually, it's, I see. it'd be like uh, move EAX comma one would be putting a one into that. So uh, if you wanted to put a zero into a register, you couldn't do move EAX zero or move AL zero um, because you're going to get that as an null byte. So what you would end up doing is you would, okay, I'll XOR the EAX register. So um, you might have seen in the past, like, XOR, EAX, EAX. What you're trying to do is zero it out, but in a way that gives you 
instructions that don't have a null in it. Okay, so if we go back to XOR, XOR is like a truth table operation. Uh, if I go back to my truth table, I've got OR, 1 and 1 gives me 1, 0, 0 gives me 0, 1 and 0 gives me 1, 0 and 1 gives me 1. XOR is the inverse, except that if it's 1 and 1, you get 0. If it's 0 and 1, it's 1, 1, 0, it's 1, and 0, 0 still 0, or is that 1? Yes. So you're like, you're inverting the bit. Yeah. So when you uh, do uh, an XOR on EAX, I, I, I lost you on the null per part. So it's like you're inverting the bit, but then what does null have to do with that? You're... Oh, so uh, if you give a null to a string copying operation, um, it's going to stop there. Because uh, that's a terminator for strings. Yep. So <laughs> it, it's one thing to understand, like, okay, I can I can put stuff in there, but it's like knowing exactly what you can put in there um, oh, and why. I see. And that's what you're exploring. Yeah. Uh, okay, because you're now, yes, okay, I get, I think I, I see. David, My that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so my assembly knowledge, all, so I'm, I'm remembering another project that I started um, and, and do want to finish, um, but it's, it's going to be a, a much longer one, unfortunately. Uh, a friend and I had wanted to get the statistics for all the players from this old Sega game. And so I thought, you know, I bet I can just look and figure out where all the um, the player stats are and stuff. But it that, that turned out to be a, a much bigger task than I thought. And I, I basically just hit a wall of understanding. And it was, OK, you know, I, I have a I have a general idea of what's going on in assembly, but I I don't I don't really fully grok it. And so having to learn uh, the Motorola 68000, which if, if you're going to learn assembly, um, start with that one. Cause that it's, I, I think that's just a swell architecture. Um, yeah, it's, uh, very easy to learn. Uh, I think there's like 56 instructions really. Um, and you, you could, you could get a decent idea of how that works in a weekend. Um, so start from that, but yeah, so I, I wanted to learn that, um, and then in the process of trying to do that, I realized that my tools for reverse engineering and, and like trying to pull this game apart and, and get at the stats, well, geez, I don't really understand uh, how to use radar all that well. So I started doing that and then started sending uh, a few commits their way. So basically, I, I look at everything I've done since February, and there's no clear path that led me to this place, <laughs> but, but it's been explored. really fun. <laughs> You're exploring your interest, it sounds yeah. like, and it's covered a lot of different topics. Everything but school, basically, is uh, where I've where I've been going with this. So I have been back in the land of C again, just because of the most recent course was on data structures and algorithms, and the options were C, C++, and Java, and it's been fun. I like C. Uh, I don't know if I'd actually want to work on a large C code base, but it's been fun to write these little toy programs and uh, assignments for class uh, and, uh, you know, and understanding data structures and algorithms from that perspective. I It also helps me understand why Go made a lot of its choices that it's uh, made today in terms of like just starting with the base tools so that you can build a Go program very quickly without having to write a make file or CMake or uh, Conan, I don't know, all the other options out there and keeping things so simple. Uh, by not introducing things into the language. And I am glad that they finally figured out modules as a way of distributing and sharing code. However, I'm not sure if versioning is still a thing. Is that still a problem? The V2 problem, the V3 problem, I have yet to learn. I, I still yeah. use modules very sparingly. And it, it's only when it's like, well, I want to pull in a HashiCorp language parser, for example. Um, like, I'm not going to write my own. But I sort of see, uh, with a lot of Go projects, just these ballooning executables because it's so, they've made it almost a little too easy to just pull in code. Um, right. Because you're pulling in source, you're compiling all that source into a, uh, an executable, whether you're statically linked to system libraries, et cetera. But it's got all that code in one big binary. Yep. And for me, I always thought that Go's superpower was that okay i want this to compile in under a second like i should blink my eyes and i'm ready to go 
and there have been some projects that have been working on and work capacity. And uh, the problem is uh, once you have to wait, once it's like, well, maybe I'll get a cup of coffee. You've broken that thing which made Go so special in the first place. Uh, uh, right. Everything you pull in. Uh, and, and I mean, Rust has the same problem, too. It's great when you can pull something in, but with large projects, the dependency chain gets so, so wild. Um, you say, ah, okay, well, I'm going to pull in this HashiCorp language parser, for example. Um, well, that parser is going to be pulling in a whole bunch of packages on its own. And so all of a sudden, what what you thought was just a very simple, well, I just sort of need this. Every, everyone's relying on so much else. And I I'm not auditing that source code like I like I read the source code for the the parser. But so a basic hello world parsing project with um, that parser, you end up with a I think it was like a 10 megabyte binary. I was just thinking that is gigantic for what it's actually trying to do. You know, I'm still early enough in my Go learning curve that maybe there's maybe there's some secrets here that I, I need to understand. But. I'm I'm noticing a lot of very big Go binaries, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I, disk is cheap, but like it, it's it still has to be loaded into memory and stuff. So I I wish I could comment on that. I have no experience with that except to know that uh, your Go.sum files can grow pretty big. <laughs> it's, oh yeah. Uh, uh, you end up with more slash slash indirect than maybe the actual direct dependencies in some cases. <laughs> Uh, who is auditing all that software, the, the, as especially when the software is changing and moving? I think Go.sum typically pins to a, a Gitch hash, right? So it's actually pinned to a specific version. Uh, so you still choose when to update. But your point being is that, uh, you know, one dependency can actually bring in many other dependencies, which can produce uh, a really large binary when you may only be using like one tenth of the actual library itself. And You've brought in all this other stuff that you can't really remove or prune out. I remember .NET having the concept of uh, DLLs. These are like uh, dynamically linked libraries, something like that. I can't remember what they stood for. But you could actually pre-compile binaries and distribute them pre-compiled. I don't know if Go has something like that. Uh, These binaries that you could pre-compile and distribute and sideload and interop, or uh, does that just go against the convention of compiling from source? Uh, you know, I don't know that off the top of my head, um, but yeah, I, I think there's going to be at some point a reckoning in that community where I, I'm essentially it's at what I like to think of as the moment of lost innocence when all of a sudden you end up with a left pad situation. So, um, <laughs> yeah, for, for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Um, so the node JS community was unbeknownst to most, uh, incredibly reliant on this one package called leftpad. And it was basically just a single function, if I recall correctly. But Just a beca- leftpad a string. That's all yeah, it is. That was it. Um, and so when the author of that package decided to suddenly revoke the package, the build systems, like in so many projects, just cratered um, because the package was no longer there. And and then there was also the worry about um, new packages getting inserted. I, I mean, with Go um, doing the um, hash locking, you, you could avoid that. But um, it's still really concerning just how easy it is to, um, to break something these days. I suppose that's why they have vendoring, right? Go, Go mod mm-hmm. vendor to, to protect against that scenario. It still seems weird to me to, to put... Like to run Go mod vendor and then add vendor to source control. I, I have like this inclination. No, I don't want to put vendor in source control, but I, I suppose it protects you from those sorts of situations where the author of one library decides to yank it or pull it off the internet. Um, that could be quite disruptive to your building process. Well, it's it's why I've always been a, a big fan of batteries included type uh, environments. So like Python, what I love about Python is even after you know, many months of not touching it, I can just reapproach it and I can just, it just imp- bring in all that magic and it's yeah. just there. And I don't have to start digging through PyPy trying to find like, okay, I want to do some uh, SMTP stuff. Well, Python's got a library for it and standard. 
In the uh, standard? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, man. You you could spend days just going through um, all the uh, standard library stuff in Python. It's awesome. I, I think it has like a Telnet library. Um, anytime you need an HTTP server real quick, you can just pull that in, even from the command line. Um, I would love to see Go take that same approach, but I don't I don't know if they'll actually do it. Is the unfortunate part. This is what the Rust community, uh, the, their argument for why they don't really want a standard library, that, much like Python's, is oh well, code that ends up in the standard library dies. You know, like it, it doesn't see a lot of movement. But I sort of feel like there's a lot of code that shouldn't be moving in the first place. <laughs> like even if your standard library is just like you're enumerating HTTP error codes or something like those aren't going anywhere. So I, I would love to see more of that. I, I mean, go there, there is the uh, slash X uh, packages where uh, I guess that's for their experimental branches. Oh, is that uh, what that means? I've seen them, but I, I didn't realize that it was a convention that meant something. Uh, yeah. I, and my, my understanding of that, and I, I might be wrong with this is that it, it's essentially stuff they they don't want to put in the standard library, I, I like have the, the standard library promise of you know that that should always just work and it's supported, but essentially it's stable enough that you could just use it. So like I think there was some crypto stuff in there. Um, I know there was a um, a web dev library um, in there because I was I was trying to use that a little while back. Um, yeah, so there, there's back front page memories. Oh. WebDev is awesome. Like I never, I didn't understand the technology. I just remember it being one of the options in front page for publishing. And uh, now I just told the world I used Microsoft front page. <laughs> front page was so great. Like it was. I did like it. Yeah. Well, I, there's so many. I, I sort of miss uh, the the days of just like you you we would have like a basic website. And yeah, it was uh, quite satisfying to have something minimal, you know, dragged and published pretty quickly, whether it was front page or Dreamweaver. Uh, I mean, those were entry points for me, I guess, into HTML programming, because I could drag something onto the WYSIWYG editor and then view source and see what it did and learn from that. Maybe maybe we'll redo the cyberdelia.tech website with, like, Dreamweaver. <laughs> we'll add the meta tag generator Dreamweaver yeah. version 2020 or whatever. Flashing marquee. <laughs> <laughs> the construction under construction pages. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, '90s web is coming back. So. Uh, so was '90s fashion. My kids are like looking through some of my old clothes, and they're like, "Can I wear this hat? Can I have this hoodie?" So yeah, our '90s. We got to bring back the link banner. Uh, like as you mentioned, the the, the marquee. Ah oh, well, I, I'm waiting for web ring. Because there's that digital minimalist movement. How long is it going to be before the, the token of digital minimalism is, oh, I still hear the dial-up modem sound because I only I only access the internet when I want to call in. <laughs> yes, I respect my time. Oh, I can faintly hear the, uh, the sound of that modem flaring up. I remember the busy signal. Oh, geez, that got me in a lot of trouble. Uh, with, with COVID, I mean, so Mo, you, you've you've been working from home for a while. Have you found COVID? You've had to be making any like adjustments in how you approach it. Yes, I had to invest in some gym equipment. Uh, I think that's been a, a significant change for me. It's like at least I had the option to go out and go to the gym, and for me, it's just like meditation you know, doing bare minimum to preserve this beautiful body and uh, having to replace that with an ability to work out from home um, was important to me just because of the style of workout that I enjoy. Uh, yeah, and there's transitions too, because like the early COVID was pretty tough with uh, everyone being at home and I liked having my space and a little bit of quiet. Now the kids are grown up, so they, they know how to, how to uh, handle themselves for the most part, but for them transitioning, I think we may have talked about this a little bit, but for them transitioning to an online curriculum or online school was quite difficult. Uh, we initially, they didn't have their own laptops, so we were sharing laptops between them. And so when one child had to be in a classroom meeting at a certain time and the other one had a conflicting meeting at the same time, that caused a bit of 
panic and problems because the kids didn't want to miss out and fall behind and not hear something that they're supposed to hear and also get used to Google Classroom, which the, the interface was not intuitive to even to me. I couldn't figure out like where are you supposed to find your stuff. So all of those challenges, I think it took just a, a little while to normalize to make sure they had the equipment they needed to be able to attend classrooms and make sure that they had a calendar and they knew where they were supposed to be at a certain time so they could actually arrange their day. For the most part, they had certain meetings they had to be at at a certain time, but then it was up to them to figure out what to work on and how to break up their day and time management and all those things. You gotta, they need help, <laughs> right? Uh, and so that took a bit of time. It's a shame you didn't get the, uh, uh, so we, one one thing for our listeners, we, we started on working on um, trying to get this alpha station um, back up and running. Oh, right. uh, if if only we'd gotten that sorted out uh, before the school year started, would have, that, that would have been an awesome way of uh, starting your class. <laughs> yeah, I uh, yeah, and we did that virtually over uh, over Skype. We were working together to try to get that thing to boot up and connect to to the console mm-hmm. via the terminal. That was fun. Yeah, and and like so, we're, we were reading the uh, VT four twenty um, monitor like yeah. uh, the terminal, and uh, it. It's so fun working with old equipment like that because all of a sudden it makes uh, the terminology that we use like um, it's just in a normal Linux system. It makes sense. Like, oh, you know, that that's a virtual terminal versus a physical terminal. That's yeah. uh, Yeah. That was a powerful moment for me, David, like actually seeing the terminal come alive and the idea of the terminal connecting to the, the computer through a console or through that. I think it was an RS-232 cable. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the moment where things started to stick. And I remember our first episode, I think, was on terminal emulators. Yeah. Episode one, right? So <laughs> it was uh, it was nice to be able to connect those uh, those conversations and experiences mm-hmm. to now understanding like, oh, so this is what Xterm does. This is what, uh, you know, a choice in terminal emulator, why we even use terminals today. And now when I hear like, oh, well, it's VT100 compatible, it's like, oh, that old crap, like, they improved. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the VT420 can do, I, I think it had like, oh, you could plug it into two alpha two. servers. <laughs> yes. And you could have uh, two sessions simultaneously. Oh, was, yeah. We split I, the screen, I think, and we had two sessions. <laughs> that was great. We weren't actually able to connect to the server, unfortunately. Um, never got that going, but it was it was nice to get like an understanding of like what it's doing and what it means to operate on a terminal. We'll, we'll definitely have to um, uh, take another stab at that one and, and probably update the uh, website with some, some pictures and our progress. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of interesting, it's been a really interesting year in general uh, in tech and outside of tech in tech has been interesting just because uh, organizations had to shift to this remote working culture. So Having a, a benefit such as, a, you know, a really nice office where you'd get catered meals, etc., was no longer available or, you know, might have been replaced in some ways. <clears throat> I know a benefit for the organization I'm at was being able to travel and being able to uh, meet with other engineers across the world. So travels, uh, I no no this year. And I'm wondering how different organizations are coping. How are people coping with these changes? And how, like, allowing for a remote workforce has improved and caused problems. I, I know from my own experience, I've sort of seen there's some people who their value is is that sort of in-person interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it they're, they're sort of playing at a disadvantage in, in that sort of uh, context. And so it's, it's been an adjustment to that. I, I, know, I know for myself, it's because also what. It was one thing to work from home, but, you know, afterwards you'd go out and meet friends or something. And when all of a sudden it's, well, no, there's there's just none of that. Um, I, I'm amazed I've actually done like anything technical at all this year, because often I haul in the workday and just not want to look at a screen again. Um, right. Yeah. But the other thing I've noticed, and, and this is from an organization which was, you know, sort of split between working from home and um and, and working in person. So one thing I've noticed is that if you're not doing a 100% working from home arrangement, 
there are processes that may not be written down um, and arrangements that uh, all of a sudden it's, oh, we, we actually have to make sure that we're doing this because all of a sudden that conversation that you might have had at the water cooler, you know, once or twice a week, you're not having that. And so, you know, teams can fall out of sync because there was no reason to have, you know, those synchronization sessions. It was happening ad hoc. So that's been really um, it, it's interesting how with work from home, it, if if you're in a uh, full working from home arrangement, like you, you really do have to lean on process. And so, uh, yeah, yeah basically, we, we talked about that in the uh, working from home uh, episode, which um, I, I know that that started seeing a lot of traction uh, that particular episode. Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of wish we kept logs, but uh, yeah. Uh, so on our website, we actually uh, kind of make a point of not having uh, ad trackers or anything like that. So basically it's just, I, I look at the syslogs every once in a while and just, just to make sure everything's uh, working as we expect. If I recall connect correctly, we are, uh, cookie free. So if there are no cookies, no set cookie headers should be coming from that website. <laughs> I I hope that's the case. <laughs> I, let me just double check that, but I'm yeah. sure we made an effort to make that a reality. Oh, I don't want the keyboard to be audio. Um, you know what has been interesting as well to me is these organizations that were typically um, very office centric have now adopted work from home uh, or remote uh, as part of their hiring. So companies that, you know, weren't hiring here in Calgary before are now, which has sort of created more opportunity for those who are here in a little more competition as well. Definitely some recruiters have been coming out of the woodwork where, yeah, you know, before I'd say, well, I'm in Calgary. And that was that was the end of the conversation. Um, Yeah, yeah. Same with like uh, H1B1 conversations. Um, uh, and I, I don't know the policies that have changed recently in the U.S., but I'm getting a lot more SF recruiters than I ever have. And I don't have my light on on LinkedIn. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's been interesting seeing that landscape um, sort of unfold, as well as like the politics of it. Because, you know, before working from home, there was no solid arrangement of, uh, okay, well, this company makes sure that uh, the employees get paid the same rate across the board versus, uh, okay, this company will base it based on the the particular geographical market, Um, which, I mean, as an approach, I think is actually kind of a dangerous one because um, it can can reinforce... Working for a company um, that does that. (laughs) Just from the HR perspective, like depending on how specific you make it like if you um if you put your wages based off of area code well the the racial makeup of different neighborhoods can be different and so uh like if you say oh well we'll pay you um based off of what the city is like you might be reinforcing um social inequality uh so not improving it you're you're making it worse amplifying it yeah Mm -hmm. so i like that's that's a conversation that's still only just starting to be broached partly because i mean the economy is just all over the place Um, uh, there's other interesting things that i've run into that i've never really thought about before like labor laws in different countries and areas so as uh, one of the responsibilities in my current position is to do on call and so that I think the bare minimum is like one on-call shift per month. So like four for each quarter. Um, now, all engineers um, from uh, engineer, senior engineers, staff engineers are all required to do on-call shifts. However, certain countries uh, it, it, like allow you or like preclude you from being able to do on-call shifts. So although there's pay mismatches, you know, so I could my colleague and I could be on the same level on the same team. But because that colleague works in one country, they're going to be paid a different amount than what I'm being paid. And because I work in one country, I have to do on call and and they don't have to do on call. And so there's like even just that sort of dynamic on the team. I know for me, has caused me some frustration because I've been assigned, uh, you know, on call shifts on a Sunday evening. And I'm like, 
you know, I can't really schedule anything around this. I, you know, I take this seriously, so I want to do a good job. So I can't plan to do anything. And this robs me of time that, well, I can't get back from my family with my children, right? Because things are happening throughout the week that I can't just trade a four-hour shift on a Sunday night with the four-hour shift on a Tuesday during the day and think that they're equal in weight. They're not. My kids aren't around at that time. Uh, yet my colleague who's on my team doesn't have to do that, but they get paid more because of their location factor. So it's complicated. It's messy. <laughs> I think like we're just going to have to start addressing some of these things and talking about them. And I think we're really in the infancy on um, on these cop topics. Well, and I mean, on-call pay, I, I feel like there's a whole episode you could make about working on call because i mean i i know in my in my own experience i i found on call to be um i mean it it was actually socially damaging um uh, and, yeah. and that's that's a hazard in operations work and and you know it going in um but uh you know if you lose a night of sleep you know you, you can have a bad week if you lose several nights of sleep like yeah. there, there's health effects to that. There, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different things that you just don't think about. And uh, you know, the tech industry ha- has always been sort of been partly exceptional and and not in a good way in how it approaches over time. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things. I I know that it's it's a very large field and a very large question. I it would be great if we could get someone. Uh, more nuanced on the subject. Uh, yeah. So I started reading Donald Knuth's uh, The Art of Computer Programming, and I want to say this to anyone who maybe you got the books as a gift or something, but it's just like, oh, gosh, there's probably like a lot of scary math or, oh, I don't really know assembly. Read the first chapter um, and you'll realize real quick it's actually not nearly scary as you thought. It only looks intimidating Donald is a fantastic writer. Um, I, I like I've been I've been enjoying it, but it, it is slow going. But also the books are gorgeous. Um, so if you're if you're not familiar with Donald Knuth, he's the one who uh, wrote the tech typesetting uh, system. So uh, e- like even just as artifacts and then you're not trying to learn how computer programming works. The books look great. There's four books in the volume, right? It's technically supposed to be a seven volume set was what he was originally setting out for. Um, he's finished, I, I guess you could say like three and a half. Uh, so uh, volume four, the one that's on my desk right now is it's four a. So it's um, so like he hasn't even gotten to volume five yet. Um, and I, I suspect um, rather unfortunately, unless we can figure out how to keep Donald Knuth's brain in the jar, we won't actually see Volume Seven. But it's uh, too bad. It's too bad. But honestly, even if you just read what he's already done, um, it's good. It's really good. And I, I wish I could speak more eloquently on the subject. Unfortunately, uh, it's one of those things where I'll be honest. I still don't understand it all. But that's that's the kind of exciting part. That's the fun part, yeah, is yeah. that there's room to grow. If I recall correctly, Donald Knuth would also send out a check for $2.56. If, so, yeah, do you know yes. the backstory on that? Okay. An, and, well, an, an unfortunate one. Well, so I finally started looking through, and I actually found an errata. Um, he, he hadn't put um, the answer to one of um, the questions in, and unfortunately... So I bought these books um, a few years ago and, you know, I put them on my bookshelf and I was just like, well, one day, one day. Uh, but, you know, it, it sort of looms like an Everest, you know, you, you just you don't feel like you can just rush into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'd actually bothered to have read it then, I could have sent in that errata and got my two dollars and fifty six cents. And, and instead, someone else got it, which. Uh, right. So if you, if you can find a, a, a defect in his books or literature yeah. you could let him know and he would write you a check for that that was the, well, the premise of the check right that was the premise of the check he doesn't send a check anymore because i guess there was i guess his bank didn't like all these like <laughs> tiny little checks but i mean it's still you, you still get street credit if you find something so um yeah yeah, yeah. like 
if you were holding off because it just seemed intimidating, look, you can read a page a day and and you'll get something from it. So uh, I think I, I've been holding off because they're like two hundred bucks a book, I think, or something for the whole volume. I can't uh, remember, but yeah, I just buy it and do it. I I always wanted it. Yeah. Um, and then I bought it, and then just. I, again, my, my problem is I see these books and I go, wow, that looks fantastic. And then I put it on the shelf and and it's, uh, I, I got to be better about actually a starting to read it and b finishing it. Um, so there's another book that um, and this is the one I'm reading right now for learning how to do shell coding. Uh, well, uh, it's by John Erickson. It's called Hacking the Art of Exploitation. It's really well written. Um, yeah. I'm enjoying it a lot. It, and I got an EPUB version um, in a humble bundle. And, uh, you know, instead of taking the, the book off my shelf, which um, I, I gotten it signed at DEF CON years ago. And that was why part of why I didn't want to open it was I was like, well, it's it's signed. Uh, but that that's terrible. It means you're not reading the book. Um, and, yeah, it's it's a great read. So uh, I, I'll, I'll recommend that one, too. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of like C programs that you actually get to build and write. And if I remember, you get a CD-ROM with a specific version of Linux that didn't have like ASLR protection, so you could exploit things like no op sleds and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. Is that that's the same book, right? Yeah. Yep, same book. No starch oh. press. Yep. Okay. I, okay. I haven't used the CD, but fortunately, no starch press. They're, they're a, a good publisher. So like all all the source programs, you can just download off of that uh, off of their website. So, uh, you know, my, my paper copy is still pristine, but, uh, you know, I'm finally getting to enjoy the book, which That's is good. Great. Well, I guess in other news, um, RubyConf is around the corner. It's virtual this year. And it's like November 17, 18, 19. And it's about 150 bucks, I think, U.S. for a ticket. So I bought my tickets, my first RubyConf. I'm excited to be able to join that and watch that. And Ruby 3 um, is slated for release on this year, Christmas this year. Yeah. Uh, I guess those are big pieces of info, right? <laughs> oh, they're great. I, well, when, once Ruby decided to do their major releases on Christmas, I thought that was just a great idea. <laughs> I, don't, I, really I think like it's that. always been like that. I think that's yeah, just yeah. like when Matt's has always released them. Yeah. I yeah. love it because then I get that week, I, I get the latest version and I play with it during that week after Christmas. So. It's a nice little Christmas present. And Ruby 3, there, there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, so the things I know about are our actors. There was some discussion around like a type system or being able to apply signatures. I'm not sure what, yeah, what's happening yeah. with that. I don't know if MJIT or like the actual just-in-time compilation that was happening. There's like an MJIT switch in Ruby 2.6, I want to say. I don't know if that's becoming like this default in Ruby 3. And I think that's all I know about. So, like, I'm not sure if there's anything, like, super exciting about it, except that it's just, like, the pin in the in the hat to say that, like, we've done 3x3. Three three. I, I don't know if we've achieved the improvements that we had set out from the get-go. I, I mean, I feel like performance is is still a, a great feature to have. Um, and, and I mean, the, there's always been so many knocks against Ruby about um, it, its speed, but... I've always felt, well, if you need speed, you can actually just, um, you can use uh, the FFI. Um, Write C code. Yeah, write the C code. And and that's the case with, like, Python, uh, basically most languages. Yeah, go to C. Yeah, having R actors, that that I think is going to be a a really interesting game changer. And I think it might actually bring a lot of people back to Ruby. Here's an open. Yeah, I, I haven't left Ruby, <laughs> but I'm uh, I'm hoping to see some. Uh, well, I'm hoping just to have some fun and play with it. Uh, the first thing, and I think the person who's sort of like influencing the R actor and model the most, I want to say his name is Sam Williams, who I think is the author of Async HTTP, Async IO. So he's been doing a lot of work already around uh, like proving that you we can use fibers uh, to create this. I don't exactly understand how the R actor model works. Uh, and how if it's truly parallel or if it's truly concurrent. But it's it's interesting that we're like looking at these problems and looking to, at ways to to make it human centric, I want to say, so that we can deal with these uh, sort of concurrency problems in a way that's palatable to Ruby developers. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope that I like 
our actors. <laughs> I well, don't know if there's any other things I'm looking forward to this year in, in tech. Uh, is there anything you can think of? Yeah, I can't really think of any. Like, oh, there's one thing. I'm looking forward to my Nintendo Switch. Uh, oh. I accepted an offer on Thursday, and my my treat to myself was to uh, award myself with a Nintendo Switch, and I also ordered Mario Kart. So I'm looking forward to playing Mario Kart and Switch at home. I'll have to eventually get into this Animal Crossing craze, oh. but uh, for now, it's Mario Kart. Well, I'll give you one interesting fact on the Nintendo Switch, and then I know you got to go, but... Uh, the Nintendo Switch actually has, uh, I believe, physical fuses inside of it. And so when it does an update, it will blow one of these old fuses. And they do that as a coffee protection mechanism um, to, to make sure people aren't uh, monkeying around and trying to put in um, uh, their own firmware and stuff. So, Oh. Yeah. That's an I interesting thought, uh, innovation. I'm not sure if I like that or not yet. I was sad that like when PS3 uh, disabled... I don't know what they did exactly, but at one point you could actually install Linux onto your yeah. PS3 devices, and then something had changed that prevented that. So I've got an old PS3 that I'd love to just use as a like a Linux host or something, but I, I don't know what to do with it. So I don't know if I like that. I mean, I like the idea of innovation, but that one, I'm not sure it gels with me. Well, I feel uh, that's, that's another topic for uh, later this season is about the hardware you own and how much you actually end up owning it. Um, yes. Because, man, I got things to say about Mac OS Big Sur, and they're not good things. But I'm tired uh, of leasing my laptop. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I am still working on my 2020 New Year's resolution of uh, getting off of the Apple uh, ecosystem. So uh, we got to yeah. catch up on that. We do have uh, Christmas coming up, so maybe we'll we'll be able to reunite. I'm so glad to talk to you again, David. Oh, it's nice yeah. to be able to be on the air. We haven't had a single networking hiccup. Like this is this has been awesome. Uh, a really enjoyable, <laughs> really enjoyable recording. So, thank you all for listening and and for having patience uh, with, with us. Really, largely me. I've been a slacker. Um, what what things uh, is this episode brought to us by? So this episode is brought to us by the internet. internet the internet connecting us all. It, it still works. Somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it still works. That's the trade line. <laughs> That's the internet right. byline. It still works. <laughs> Bye, David. Bye, Mo. Have a great day. You too.